0: Chapter Number Four of the Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A. Brian Johnson from Kent, Ohio. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Keeble Chatterton. Chapter Four The Corsairs of the South. When, in the year fifteen sixteen, Hadrian, Cardinal St. Crygon, wrote to Wolsey, bitterly lamenting that, from Teresina right away to Pisa, pirates consisting of Turks and African Moors were swarming the sea. He was scarcely guilty of any exaggeration. Multifarious and murderous though the pirates of northern Europe had long since shown themselves, yet it is the Mediterranean, which throughout history, and more especially during the 16th century, has earned the distinction of being the favorite and most eventful sphere of robbery by sea. You may ask how this came about. It was no longer the case of the old Sicilians, or the Balearic Islanders, coming into activity once more. On the contrary, the last-mentioned people, far from being pirates in the 16th century, were actually pillaged than pillagers. A new element had now been introduced, and we enter upon a totally different sphere of the piratical history. Before we seek to inquire into the origin and development of this new force, which comes across the pages of history, let us bear in mind the change which had come over the Mediterranean. During the classical times, piracy was indeed bad enough, because, among other things, it interfered so seriously with the corn ships, which carried the means of sustenance. But in those days, the number of freight ships of any kind was infinitesimal, compared with the enormous number of fighting craft that were built by the mediterranean nations and however much greece and rome labored to develop the warlike galley yet the evolution of the merchant ship was sadly neglected partly no doubt because of the risks which a merchant ship ran and partly because these centuries of fighting evoked little encouragement for a ship of commerce during the centuries which followed the downfall of the roman empire it must not be supposed that the sea was bereft of pirates As we have already seen, the decay of Rome was commensurate with the revival of piracy. But with the gradual spread of southern civilization, the importance of and the demand for commercial ships, as differentiated from fighting craft, increased to an unheard of extent. No one requires to be reminded of the rise to great power of Venice and Genoa and Spain. They became great overseas traders within limits, and this postulated the ships in which goods could be carried. So it came to this, that crossing and recrossing the Mediterranean, there were more big-bellied ships full of richer cargoes and traversing the sea with greater regularity than had ever been in the history of the world. And as there will always be robbers when given the opportunity, either by sea or by land, irrespective of race or time, so when this amount of wealth was now afloat, the sea robber had every incentive to get rich quickly by means that appealed, in the strongest terms, to an adventurous temperament. In Italy, the purely warlike ship had become so obsolete that, in the opinion of some authorities, it was not till about the middle of the ninth century that these began to be built. At any rate, as regards that great maritime power, Venice, she had been too concerned with the production and exchange of wealth to center her attention on any species of ship other than those which would carry freights. But so many defeats had she endured at the hands of the Saracens and pirates that ships specially suitable for combat had from the year 841 to be built. The Saracens hailed from Arabia, and it is notable that at that time, the Arabian sailors who used to sail across the Indian Ocean were far and away the most scientific navigators in the whole world. Many of their Arabic terms still surviving in nautical terminology to this day. Indeed, the modern mariner, who relies so much on nautical instruments, scarcely realizes how much he owes to these early seamen. Just as the Sicilians and others had in olden times harassed the shores of the Mediterranean, so now the Saracens made frequent incursions into Sardinia, Corsica, Sicily, as well as intercepting the ships of the Adriatic. Let us remember that in both the north and south of Europe, the sailing seasons for century after century were limited to that period which is roughly indicated between the months of April and the end of September. Therefore, the pirate knew that if he confined his attentions to that period, and within certain sea areas, he would be able to encompass practically the whole of the world's seaborne trade. The sailing periods were no arbitrary arrangement, they were part of the maritime legislation and only the most daring and, at the same time, most lawless merchant skippers ventured forth in the off-season. Realizing that the mariner had in any lengthy voyage to contend not merely with bad weather, but probably with pirates, the merchant pilots were instructed to know how to avoid them. For instance, their main object should be to make the merchant ship as little conspicuous on the horizon as possible. Thus, after getting clear of the land, the white sail should be lowered and a black one hoisted instead. They were warned that it was especially risky to change sail at break of day, when the rising sun might make this action easily observable. A man was to be sent aloft to scan the sea, looking for these rovers and keep a good look out. That black sail was called the Wolf because it had the color and cunning of such an animal. At night, too, similar precautions were employed against any danger of piratical attack, so that the boatswain was not even allowed to use his whistle, nor the ship's bell to be sounded. Everyone knows how easily a sound carries on the sea, especially by night, so the utmost care was to be exercised lest a pirate hovering about might have the rich merchant ship's presence betrayed to her avaricious ears. But the Saracens, whose origin I've just mentioned, must not be confused with the barbarian corsairs. It is with the latter, the Grand Pirates of the South, that I pass on now to deal. So powerful did they become, that it took the efforts of the great maritime powers of Europe till the first quarter of the 19th century before they could exterminate this scourge. And even today, in this highly civilized century, if you were to be becalmed off the coast of North Africa in a sailing yacht, you would soon find some of the descendants of these barbarian corsairs coming out with their historic tendency to kill you and pillage your ship. If this statement should seem to any reader somewhat incredible, I would refer him to the captain of any modern steamship who habitually passes that coast. And I would beg also to call his attention to the incident a few years ago that occurred to the famous English racing yacht, Isla which was lying becalmed somewhere between Spain and Africa. But for a lucky breeze springing up, her would-be assailants might have captured a very fine prize. I shall use the word Muslim to mean Musliman or Mohammedan or Moor, and I shall ask the reader to carry his mind back to the time when Ferdinand and Isabella turned the Moors out from Spain and sent them across the Straits of Gibraltar back to Africa. For seven hundred years these Moors had lived in the Iberian Peninsula. It must be admitted in fairness that these Moors were exceedingly gifted intellectually, and that there are ample evidences in Spain to this day of their accomplishments. On the other hand, it is perfectly easy to appreciate the desire of a Christian government to banish these Mohammedans from a Catholic country. Equally comprehensible is the bitter hatred which these Moors forever after manifested against all christians of any nation but against the spanish more especially what were these spanish moors now expatriated to do they spread themselves along the north african coast but it was not immediately that they took to the sea when however they did so accustomed themselves it was not as traitors but as pirates of the worst and most cruel kind The date of their explosion from Granada was 1492, and within a few years of this, they had set to work to become avenged. The type of craft which they favored was of the galley species, a vessel that was of great length in proportion to her extreme shallowness, and was manned by a considerable number of oarsmen. Sail power was employed, but only as auxiliary rather than of main reliance. Such a craft was light, easily and quickly maneuvered, could float in creeks and bays close to the shore, or could be drawn up to the beach if necessary. In all essential respects, she was the direct lineal descendant of the old fighting galleys of Greece and Rome. From about the beginning of the 16th century to the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, the Muslim corsair was at his best as a sea rover and a powerful racial force and if he was still a pest to shipping after that date, yet his activities were more of a desultory nature. Along the barbarian coast, at different dates, he made himself strong, though of these strongholds, Algiers remained for the longest time the most notorious. In considering these Muslim corsairs, one must think of men who were as brutal as they were clever who became the greatest galley tacticians which the world has ever seen. Their greed and lust for power and property were commensurate with their ability to obtain these. Let it not be supposed for one moment that during the grand period these Moorish pirate leaders were a mere ignorant and uncultured number of men. On the contrary, they possessed all the instincts of a clever diplomatist, united the ability of a great admiral an autocratic monarch dominating their very existence was their bitter hatred of christians either individually or as nations and though a careful distinction must be made between these barbarian corsairs and the turks who were often confused in the 16th century accounts of these rovers yet from a very early stage the moorish pirates and the turks assisted each other you have only to remember that they were both muslims to remind yourself that the downfall of constantinople in 1453 gave an even keener incentive to harass christians and to recollect that though the turks were great fighters by land yet they were not seamen they had an almost illimitable quantity of men to draw upon and for this as well as other reasons it was to the moors interests that there should be a close association with them during the fifteenth and especially the sixteenth centuries There was in general European use a particular word which instantly suggested a certain character that would stink in the nostrils of any Christian, be he under the domination of Elizabeth or Charles V. This word was renegade, which of course is derived from the Latin nego, I deny. Renegade, or as the Elizabethan sailors often used it, renegado, signifies an apostate from the faith a deserter or turncoat. But it was applied in those days almost exclusively to the Christian who had so far betrayed his religion as to become a Muslim. In the 15th century, a certain Balkan renegade was exiled from Constantinople by the Grand Turk. From there, he proceeded to the southwest, took up his habitation in the island of Lesbos in the Aegean Sea, married a Christian widow, and became the father of two sons, named respectively and the renegade being a seaman it was natural that the two sons should be brought up to have the same avocation having regard to the ancestry of these two men and bearing in mind that lesbos had long been notorious for its piratical inhabitants the reader will in no wise be surprised to learn that these two sons resolved to become pirates too they were presently to reach a state of notoriety which time can never expunge from the pages of historical criminals. For the present let us devote our attention to the elder brother, Uruj. We have little space to deal with the events of his full life, but this brief sketch may suffice. The connection of these two brothers with the banished Moors is that of organizers and leaders of a potential force of pirates. Uruj, having heard of the success which the Moorish galleys were now attaining, of the wonderful prizes which they had carried off from the face of the sea, felt the impulse of ambition, and responded to the call of the wild. So we come to the year 1504, and we find him in the Mediterranean, longing for a suitable base whence he could operate, where, too, he could haul his galleys ashore during the winter and refit. For a time, Tunis seemed to be the most alluring spot in every way, and strategically, It was ideal for the purpose of rushing out and intercepting the traffic passing between italy and africa he came to terms with the sultan of tunis and in return for one-fifth of the booty obtained urich was permitted to use this as his headquarters and from here he began with great success to capture italian galleys bringing back to tunis both booty and aristocratic prisoners for perpetual exile the women were cast into the sultan's harem and the men were chained to the benches of the galleys. One incident alone would well illustrate the daring of Uruc, who had now been joined by his brother. The story is told by Mr. Stanley Lane Poole in his History of the Barbarian Corsairs, that one day, when off Elba, two galleys belonging to Pope Julius II were coming along, laden with goods from Genoa for Civita Vecchia. The disparity and the daring may be realized when we state that each of these galleys was twice the size of Uruj's craft. The papal galleys had become separated, and this made matters easier for the corsair. In spite of the difference in size, he was determined to attack. His Turkish crew, however, remonstrated and thought it was madness, but Uruj answered this protestation by hurling most of the oars overboard, thus making escape impossible. They had to fight or die. This was the first time that Turkish corsairs had been seen off Elba, and as the papal galley came on and saw the turbaned heads, a spirit of consternation spread throughout the ship. The corsair galley came alongside. There was a volley of firing. The Turkish men leapt aboard, and before long, the ship and the Christians were captured. The Christians were sent below, and the papal ship was now manned by Turks who disguised themselves in the Christians' clothes and now they were off to pursue the second galley as they came up to her the latter had no suspicion but a shower of arrows and shot followed by another short sharp attack made her also a captive into tunis came the ships and the capture amazed both barbarian corsair and the whole of christendom alike the fame of uru spread and along the whole coast of north africa he was regarded with a wonder mingled with the utmost admiration He became known by the name Barbarossa, owing to his own physical appearance, the Italian word "rosa," signifying red, and barba, meaning a beard. He followed up this success by capturing next year a Spanish ship with 500 soldiers, and there were other successes, so that in five years, he had eight vessels. But Tunis had now become too small for him. So, for a time, he moved to the island of Jerba, on the east coast of Tunis. And from there, he again harassed Italy. Such was the fame of Barbarossa that he was invited to help the Moors. It chanced that the Muslim king of Bujea had been driven out of his city by the Spaniards, and the exile appealed to Barbarossa to assist him in regaining his own. The reward offered to the Turk was that, in the event of victory, Barbarossa should henceforth be allowed the free use of Bujea, the strategic advantage of this port being that it commanded the Spanish Sea. The Turk accepted the invitation on these terms, and having now a dozen galleys with ample armament, in addition to 1,000 Turkish soldiers, as well as a number of renegades and moors, he landed before the town in August of 1512. Here he found the king ready with his 3,000 troops, and they proceeded to storm the bastion in which an all-too-weak Spanish garrison had been left. Still, for eight days the Spaniards held out. And then, when a breach was made, and a fierce assault was being carried out, Barbarossa had the misfortune to have his left arm amputated. so Bujea being now left alone, Barbarossa and his brother put to sea again. They had not won the victory, but they had captured a rich Genoese galley full of merchandise. Barbarossa took her back with him to his headquarters, and while he recovered from his wounds, his brother Caruddin acted in his stead. Not unnaturally, the Genoese were angered at the loss of their fine galleot and sent forth Andrea Doria, the greatest Christian admiral, with a dozen galleys to punish the Turks. The Christians landed before Tunis, drove Keridin back into Tunis and took away to Genoa one half of Barbarossa's ships. Keridin now proceeded to Jerba to build other ships as fast as possible. And as soon as his wounds allowed him, Barbarossa here joined him. Meanwhile, the Moors were still chafing at their inability to get even with the Spaniards, and once more an attempt was made to take Bougiea, although unsuccessfully, and the corsairs' ships were burnt lest they might fall into the hands of the enemy. At length, the Barbarossas resolved to quit Tunis, and Djerba, for they had now chosen to settle at Jigil, sixty miles to the east of Bougiea. Their fame had come before them, The inhabitants were proud to welcome the brother corsairs who had done many wonderful things by land and sea, and before long, the elder Barbarossa was chosen as their sultan. In 1516 died Ferdinand, and about this time the Algerian Moors declined any longer to pay tribute to Spain. To Barbarossa came an invitation to aid these inhabitants of Algiers in driving the Spanish garrison from their fort. The invitation was accepted. 6,000 men and 16 galleots were got together. Arrived before the fortress of Algiers, Barbarossa offered a safe conduct to the garrison, if they would surrender. But the latter's reply was merely to remind the corsair of Bujea. Then, for twenty days, Barbarossa battered away at the fortress, but without making a breach. And meanwhile, the Moors began to regret that they had asked the Red Beard to aid them. But it would be less easy to turn them out now that once these daredevils had set foot on their territory. Barbarossa knew this and waxed insolent. The Algerines made common calls with the soldiers in the fortress, and a general rising against the Redbeard was planned. But they had reckoned without their guest, for Barbarossa had spies at work and became informed of this plot. Whilst at prayers on Friday in the mosque, Barbarossa had the gates closed. The conspirators brought before him one by one, and then, after twenty-two of them had been put to death, there was an end to this plotting against the Corsair of Lesbos. Barbarossa increased in power, in the number of his galleys, in the extent of his territory, and in the number of his subjects, so that by now he had become the Sultan of Middle Barbary. Practically the whole of that area, marked on our modern maps of Algeria, was under his sway step by step leaping from one success to another ignoring his occasional reverses he had risen from a mere common pirate to the rank of a powerful sultan so potent had he become in fact that he was able to make treaties with other barbarian sultans and all the summer season his galleys were scouring the sea bringing back increased wealth and more unfortunate christian prisoners richly laden merchant ships from genoa from naples from venice from spain set forth from home, and neither the ships nor their contents were ever permitted to return or to reach their ports of destination. However, the time came when the Christian states could no longer endure this terrible condition of affairs, and Charles V was moved to send a strong force to deal with the evil. Ten thousand seasoned troops were sent in a large fleet of galleys to northern Africa, and at last the wasp was killed for barbarossa with his fifteen hundred men was defeated and he himself was slain while fighting boldly unfortunately the matter ended there and the troops instead of pressing home their victory and wiping the barbarian coast clean of this moorish dirt left algiers severely alone and returned to their homes had they instead ruthlessly sought out this lawless piratical brood The troublesome scourge of the next three centuries would probably never have caused so many European ships and so many English and foreign sailors and others to end their days under the lash of tyrannical monsters. End of chapter 4 Recording by A. Brian Johnson from Kent, Ohio.